Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Here is the word of God. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Thus says the Lord. Friends, we have two more sermons in our series in Marriage and Singleness, and the passage that we're going to be talking about this week addresses a specific situation that may not directly apply to all Christians. But even so, I really want to encourage everyone to still listen in because there's still a lot I think we all can learn from it, although it might not be directly speaking to you in your situation. Our passage today specifically talks about what a Christian man or woman is supposed to do if they find themselves married to a non-Christian. Now, it's important to note that the Bible here isn't permitting a Christian to marry a non-Christian, and I realize that's perhaps a very sensitive or personal topic for a lot of us. And if you have questions about that or if you want to hear more about that, then please refer to our previous sermon last week on 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But today, I want to emphasize, this is not the situation in which a Christian is marrying a non-Christian, but the situation in our passage today is referring to a situation, say, where two non-Christians get married as non-Christians. But then sometime during their marriage, one person receives Christ as Lord and Savior, but the other hasn't. In that case, what is the Christian spouse supposed to do? And Peter tells us here in verse 1 that the Christian spouse in that situation is called to protect the marriage and imitate the humility of Christ in the way that they relate to their non-believing spouse in hope that the non-believing spouse would be won over to Christ. That's what Peter says in verse 1. So, a quick side note, please don't use this passage to give marital instructions for two Christians who are married. That's not what this passage is about. That's not what the book of 1 Peter is about. Peter wrote this letter to give Christians back then instructions about how to handle persecution. And in this particular part of the letter, he's just telling us how to do it when that persecution comes from our spouse who's a non-Christian. And again, you may not be married to non-Christians, so this, you may not feel yourself uh, that, that you're in this specific situation, but don't tune out just yet. There's tons of stuff here that we can learn about Christian meekness, humility, and 
and wisdom from this passage. Also, another thing I want to say before I start, I'm going to be very, very, very specific and wordy with, with my points here, more so than usual for, for two reasons. One, because this is a very sensitive subject. So I, I want to be extra sure that I don't end up communicating something that I didn't intend to communicate. But also, second reason, I realize that some of you may be in this particular situation yourself. You may be married to a non-believer and, and you would appreciate some more specific guidance about what to do. So because of that, I'll be extra clear in spelling out the application as we move along, perhaps more so than my other sermons, okay? So there's three things I wanna point out from this passage along with the subpoints. okay? It'll be spelled out here on the screen about um, how a Christian man or woman is meant to live their lives if they're married to a non-Christian. Point one, I'm going to address Christian women who have non-Christian husbands. This is what Peter here tells us you to do. Uh, one, you're not called to endure domestic abuse. Two, know who God will hold accountable. Three, the gospel can be shared without words. Four, be wise when you worship. And five, remember the why. Don't, don't be too worried about getting all these down right now. Throughout the sermon, uh, it's going to continue to pop up in your screens as, as we go through the, the sermon. So that's the first point. Christian women who have non-Christian husbands. Second point, to Christian men who have non-Christian wives. First, stop denying that you're privileged. Two, include your wife in your Christian activities. And three, remember, this isn't a request from God. Okay, so that's for men, Christian men who are married non-Christian wives. And the third point, I want to address everyone. Okay, and to everyone, I want us to not forget who Peter addresses first here. Okay, those are the points and the subpoints. Let me get through it, and, and uh, don't worry about writing them down. They'll continue to appear as we move forward in our sermon. Okay, first point, Christian women who have non-Christian husbands. Let me just first start by giving us the context of the kind of culture that Peter was, was dealing with here. Okay, the Greco-Roman culture back then, it was very misogynistic. It was very male dominant. A commentator once said that in this Greco-Roman society, it was expected that the wife would have no friends of her own and worship the gods of her husband. <laughs> and if a man had a wife who wasn't submissive uh, to them in this culture, who kind of did her own thing, this man would have been seen as a huge failure in that culture, so much so that he would have actually been disqualified from certain jobs or career paths in this society. It, it was that intense. So men in this culture, you know, they, they probably would have gone to great lengths to make sure that their wife would submit to them and, and, and follow them, even if sometimes that means uh, they do it through abusive means, unfortunately. So say there's a couple back then, they're both non-Christians, and then the wife at some point receives Christ as Lord and Savior, and she wants to start worshiping Christ, and she wants to start to go to church, and she wants to start to fellowship with other Christians. But the husband isn't a Christian, and he worships a different God, you know, and he hangs out with a different set of people. Here's a question we have before us. What's the wife supposed to do? Now, Peter can't just say, you know, just go to church. Just just don't mind your husband, you know, you do you. Don't listen to your oppressive husband, just do your thing. See, posting words like that might get us a lot of likes on social media today. <laughs> but if Peter, if to, it, to say that back then, 
do you realize the kind of harm that could potentially bring the wife? If the wife were just to kind of disregard the husband and do her thing, go to church without caring about what her husband uh, wants or, or desires, one, you never know how the husband would react in this kind of culture. It could potentially put the wife in danger. Two, it could ruin the marriage, which would also put the wife in an unfavorable spot as a divorced woman back then. And three, it would push the husband further away from the gospel because now the gospel is going to be blamed for ruining their marriage. So Peter has to be wise in what he says here. So what does he do? Well, he, he says something unbelievably skillful. In verse 1, he says, If that's the case, then likewise, wives, be subject to your husband. What's, what he's saying is this. Look, if your husband's threatening you, if going to church could cause potential harm for you and ruin your marriage, then it's okay. Be subject to your own husbands, meaning don't go to church. It's okay. Now, I, I realize how that might sound to our Christian ears today, okay? Some of us here might be sitting thinking, don't go to church, how could you say that? You know, you, you must always go to church. A Christian must always lay down their rights to display Christ for the sake of the gospel. And look, you're right. A Christian must always lay down their rights to display Christ for the sake of the gospel. But don't you realize that's exactly what the wife would be doing here in this situation by not going to church. By not going to church, she's laying down her rights for the sake of Christ and display the gospel to her husband. And, and I get how this is counterintuitive to, to our Christian ears today, you know, and Peter's not at all trying to diminish the importance of church here. Remember, he's trying to give a, the most God-glorifying, Christ-adorning application that the wife could do within the context of this very abusive culture by saying, it's okay, lay down your rights as Christ did for you and, and listen to your husband. Don't go to church. See, Peter here does three God-glorifying things in one stroke. First, by saying this, he protects the woman who God cherishes. Second, by doing this, uh, he keeps the harmony of the marriage, which, God's va which God values. And, and third, the husband, in this case, gets to see the gospel lived out in front of him by the wife, which is God's mission. That's what Peter's trying to do. Saying don't go to church isn't a cop-out. It's an unbelievably mature and wise gospel application within this very abusive context. And what Peter's doing here, he's also relieving the wife, do you see, from any guilt that she might feel about not going to church. He's saying, hear it from me, dear sister. I'm an apostle of God, so I have authority here, Peter's saying. And I'm telling you right now that if your husband is threatening you, and if the husband is threatening the marriage and prohibiting you from going to church, then it's okay. Be subject to him. I'm giving you the permission to take it off of your conscience right now. And I'm telling you, it's okay. Don't go to church. God's not going to look down on you and say, how dare you love your marriage more than me? Just go to church and take the abuse. No. That's not who our God is. So please, take it off of your conscience. God won't blame you for this. But 
beyond that, Peter is implicitly saying something else here as well. And all the commentators that I looked at agrees that the husbands here would have also heard this implicit message from Peter. Be warned, Peter's implying here. You know, think about it, husbands. If I'm telling your wife that it's not her fault for missing church because you're forcing her to stay home, implicitly then, whose fault do you think I'm saying it is? Yours. The one subjecting her and refusing to let her go and worship God. And God will hold you accountable for that. By the way, you remember the last guy that refused to let God's people go to worship him? His name's Pharaoh. And things didn't end very well for him, did it? Take it from him. It would be in your best interest to let his people go. But see, Peter didn't say all that explicitly, which is again, I think, very genius. Because now the gospel can't be blamed for disrupting marriages. See, husbands can't get mad at Peter for this. They can't say, Peter, your religion is destroying my marriage. Peter would say, what do you mean? All I said is wives be subject to your husbands. All I asked her to do is lay down her rights for you as Christ did for her. You see the genius of this? In just one stroke, in just two verses, Peter navigated through an extremely complicated context and protected the woman who God cherishes, kept the harmony of the marriage, which God values, and shares the gospel with the husband through the behavior of the wife, which is God's mission. It's incredible, which, by the way, takes us to verse 3, because that's what verse 3 is about. Peter is really concerned about the husband uh, hearing and seeing the gospel here by the wife's behavior. Uh, look at what Peter says in, in verse 3. He's saying, look, some of you, Christian wives, you may be in a situation where you have non-Christian husbands, but he lets you go to worship. He lets you go to church. You know, if that's the case, then thank God and, and go to church. Worship. But when you go to church and worship, Peter has, here says in verse 3, do not let your adorning be the external braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear. What does he mean? Okay, Peter here isn't against hair braiding or wearing jewelry, okay? Because if you take this verse literally like that, then Peter would also have to be against wearing clothes because that's what he said at the end of verse 3, right? Don't let your adorning be the clothes you wear. What Peter is saying here is that if you, a non-Christian woman, happens to be married to a non... I mean, sorry, if you, a Christian wife, happens to be married to a non-Christian husband and he lets you go to worship, just be wise in how you go. Because the wife is about you know, to go somewhere publicly by herself in this culture, which would be seen as very suspect already back then. But on top of that back, back then, there's also the stigma about women who would dress up and wear a lot of jewelry. Many Greek philosophers would say that that's an act of seduction. And all, all Peter is saying here is like, look, if you're going to leave your, ho your husband at home alone when you go to church, that's, that's already very suspect, okay? So, so just be wise about how you go about doing it. Don't give your husband any more reason to be suspect of your motives. Don't give his friends any more reason to ridicule him. Remember, we're trying to lure him to the gospel here. We're trying to display Christ to him here. So make it abundantly clear by the way you carry yourself when you walk out of that door that the purpose of you going is purely to worship Christ and Christ alone and not for any other reason. So... 
Peter's just encouraging the wife to, to lay down her rights, you know, to, to, to don't, you know, protect herself from potential abuse, protect the marriage unity, and also share the gospel to your husband by laying down her rights in, in all areas if she decides to stay or if she goes to church, if the husband wants to go to church. And, and at this point, it, it's really, really important for Peter to clarify one thing. Because all that Peter is saying here, it sounds very much like what these Greek philosophers would say to women too, doesn't it? They would say, woman, just submit to your husbands, okay? If he says you can't go to church, don't go to church. And if he lets you go, you know, put all this extra effort in thinking about what to wear and what not to wear. And, and at this point, you know, Peter could sound like he's just echoing this abusive, misogynistic culture. You know, we can just picture some woman back then saying, okay, Peter, you know, I, I hear all that. I get all that. That's what Philo and all these other philosophers would say anyways. You know, we just need to submit because we're less than men. And, and at this point, this is where Peter very quickly clarifies, hold on. No, no, no. Don't mix up what I'm saying with what they're saying. See, these Greek philosophers, okay, they want you to submit because they think you're less valuable than men. But I have a very different reason for your submission. And it's not based on this oppressive man-made philosophy, but it's based on Scripture and the gospel. That's why he very quickly here in verse 5 transitions and goes to the Old Testament. He, so what's the reason for his submission? He goes to the Old Testament. He goes to Scripture. This is the foundation, he says. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham. He, here's what Peter's trying to say here. Look, I know that what I'm saying sounds like it's echoing the culture. It sounds like I'm saying, you know, just be subject to your husbands. Just be gentle and quiet at spirit. That's literally what he said in verse 4. But it's totally different at the same time. See, these Greek philosophers, they're telling you to submit because they say males are inherently better than females. That is the underlying philosophy behind their reasoning. But I'm asking you to submit not based on a misogynistic Greek philosophy that says you're less worthy than men. I'm asking you to submit based on the Bible, based on the scriptures. Now, some might hear that and still say, what's the difference? What's the big deal? At the end of the day, women are still called to submit, so it's the same. And, and yes, you're right, it may look the same. But you have to know why you do something dramatically changes how you do it. Why you do something dramatically changes how you do it. It does. Look, if you're a Christian woman married to a non-Christian man um, and, and you're submitting to your husband, it, if you do it because you believe in some philosophy that says you have no worth, if you do it because um, you believe you are, you are not as worthy of him, then, then of course you're going to allow him to step all over you then of course that's going to be grounds for potential abuse because it's uninformed submission without limits, without measure, you see. But if you're submitting to your husband, not because you believe in a philosophy that says you're less than them, but because your motivations are founded upon the scriptures, that will produce a completely different picture of submission. And, and why does the scripture say one is to submit to others? Not because you have little worth, but because you have unshakable worth in Christ. Not because you have little value, but because you're immensely valuable in Christ. Not because you're weak, 
but because you have a purpose. And that is to display the humility and love of Christ to a dying world that desperately needs it, including your husband. And if this is the underlying motivation for your submission, to display the love of Christ to your husband, and not because some philosophy that says you're less worthy than him, your submission, therefore, will be much more informed, much more controlled, much more sensible, purposeful, and well-measured. See, why you do something will dramatically affect the way you do it. And even though externally it may sound like Peter is echoing the culture here, internally, foundationally, he has a different driving factor, and that makes a world of a difference in the application of one's submission. That's why he quickly goes to the Old Testament here in verse 5. Now, there's, there's much more I, I want to say about that, but we're already short in time as it is. So let me move on here to Christian men who are married to non-Christian women, okay? How are you meant to handle persecution from, from your wives? Because it happened in that culture, and, and they got to be instructed as well. Point two, Christian men who have non-Christian wives. Now, yes, it is possible back then for Christian husbands to get persecuted by the non-Christian wives as well, but it looked really different. Why? Because males are the gender who have all the power in that culture. So if a husband accepts Christ and the wife doesn't, the kind of persecution that they may receive may look like, you know, the wife is upset about having to follow her husband to church. But that's probably the extent of it. That, that, that's all there is to it. She'll still go because she doesn't have a choice. And, and Peter is telling the Christian husband to be aware of that. Look, he's saying, culturally speaking, you have the power and your wife is the weaker vessel. Acknowledge that privilege. Don't pretend like it's not there, because until you admit it's there, you won't be able to know how to use it well. Don't abuse it. Don't, you know, don't force your wife to go to Christian events if she doesn't want to. Don't threaten your wife to pray. <laughs> Christianity doesn't work like that. Remember, the goal is to lure your wife to Christ. Threatening her to follow you to church, that won't do it. It might coerce her behavior, but it'll never persuade her heart. So what do you do instead? Well, verse 7, he says, live with her in an understanding way. Show honor to her as a weaker vessel in this culture. Don't force her to go to church with you. By the way, men, why do we submit to Christ? Why, why are we lured to Christ? Is it because he's threatened to send us to hell if we don't comply? Is that what made us follow him? No. We love and follow Christ because we know that he took on the fires of hell for us on that cross. You know, what the gospel does, the gospel makes anyone who claims to follow it unable to use power for selfish gain. It does, because in the core of our worldview lies the most powerful being in the universe who was willing to become weak for our sake, from a manger to a cross. So don't force your wife to do Christian things with you with a heavy hand. That's not the gospel. Okay, some Christians, Christian husbands at this point might be asking, does that mean that I shouldn't invite my wife to any church events at all? Well, no, of course not. You don't want to be hypersensitive about it either. This is why Peter continues to say in verse 7, um, to ask your wife to come along to church events with you since 
they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now, that's a confusing phrase because by saying that, Peter can make it sound like they're, they're saved as well, right? Uh, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, it doesn't mean that when you accepted Christ, men, that your wife automatically gets saved too and becomes an heir of life through Christ too. No, the original Greek here is probably better translated to treat her as if she's an heir with you of the grace of life. Uh, treat her like she's an heir with you of the grace of life, meaning that even though she's not a Christian yet, treat her as if she's a sister in Christ. She's probably going to follow you to church anyways in that culture. She's probably going to hang out with her Christian friends anyways and go to Bible studies with you. She doesn't really have a choice. And if she does that, don't outcast her. You know, don't make her feel like you just have to drag an unbeliever around because she's your wife. Don't make fun of her because she doesn't know all the Bible stories that you do. Invite her along. Treat her honorably like you would any other sister in Christ. And if she refuses to go to church with you, I know that might be embarrassing for you in this culture, but you must resist the temptation to abuse your power again and still honor her as a weaker vessel. Don't force her to go to church. Don't threaten her to go to church. Instead, endure the disrespect. Endure the disrespect that you might receive from her actions, for Christ has endured disrespect for you. That's what we're called to do, man. And remember Peter here says that if you claim to be Christian, you know, you, you do all these spiritual things like go to church and, and, and pray to God, you know, with long, pretty sentences, but then you go home and treat your wife with a heavy hand. <laughs> Look at what Peter says here at the end of verse 7. God's not going to hear your prayers. That's a big claim to make. What's Peter doing here? He's increasing the weight of his words here. He's saying, God's not asking. This isn't a request. How can you claim to follow a God who loved you by enduring all kinds of disrespects for you, but then come home and not be willing to love your wife by enduring the disrespect that she may be giving you? Endure it. Cherish her. Honor her. Christian men, this isn't a request. And Peter ups the pressure for the men here, of course. Why? Because the man is the one who has all the power in this culture. And God always holds those in power with a much higher standard. See, the goal is the same. For both women who's married to non-believing husbands and Christian men who's married to non-believing wives, the goal is the same, to display Christ to our non-believing spouse and hopefully win them over to the Lord but the application may be different depending on the social dynamics of your culture. Which leads to the last thing I wanna point out from our passage today, and this one's for every Christian. I wanna see something very important here. Not necessarily from what Peter wrote, but by how he wrote it. Because good literature usually communicates something not just by its content, but also by its structure. And that's exactly what Peter does here. He addresses everyone, every Christian who claims to be a follower of Christ by the structure of this part of the letter, which brings us to our last point. To everyone, don't forget who Peter addresses first. Now, you might have noticed when we read the passage, when Peter addresses both the Christian man and woman here, he says the word likewise for both, right? Look at verse one. Peter says, likewise, wives, and then he gives her instructions. And then in verse seven, Peter says, 
likewise husbands, and then he gives them instructions. Now, this tells us that Peter is basing these instructions for both parties upon some kind of example that the Christian wife and husband are meant to likewise follow, right? Whose example is it? Well, you go back a little bit at the end of chapter 2, and you'll see, of course, that this is the example of Christ. And here's what Peter said at the end of verse 2. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds, you have been healed. In other words, the majestic humility and meekness that Christ has displayed for us on that cross, that's the blueprint for every Christian, male or female, to follow. However, there's one thing I want us to see here. Notice who Peter addresses first here in our passage. He addresses the wife first, the female first. So so here's the structure. At the end of chapter 2, Peter mentions Christ. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, he mentions the wife next. And then after that, he mentions the husband. Christ, wife, husband. And all the commentators I looked at agree that this structure is very intentional and actually very profound. What Peter's doing here is that he's placing the wife closer to Christ. But why? Because Jesus loves Christian women more than Christian men? No. This is an acknowledgement that although, yes, all Christians are called to lay down their rights at all times in all cultures, there are certain genders, certain races, certain ethnicities, certain castes, that by virtue of their demographic in a particular society makes obedience to this command double hard. For example, the Christian wife in this Greco-Roman culture, which by the way, is not too different from most Asian cultures, including ours here in Indonesia, for the wife in this culture to lay down her rights and follow the example of Christ, that'd be double hard compared to the man. Why? Because she already has very little rights. And you're asking her to lay even those down? And Peter's saying, yes. All Christians are called to follow the example of Christ everywhere. But just so you know, If you happen to belong to a particular gender, race, or caste that will make obedience to this command more costly due to the the injustices that already pre-exist in your culture, I will associate myself with you, our Lord Jesus Christ says, more closely and more intimately compared to others who are not paying as much in their active obedience. For you, will truly know me and the power of my resurrection by sharing in my suffering and becoming like me in my death. That's why Peter here addresses the woman first. Let me just end with this. When I first started following Christ, I've always thought that following him meant laying down more of my time and money 
That's my definition of following Christ. And, and look, laying down those things are still important, right? It's still important for us to offer our time and money to Christ because our calendar and spending history does tell us about where our heart is. But as I, as I continue to follow Christ, I'm becoming more and more convinced. More than laying down my time and money, I think more foundationally what he's asking me to lay down is my ego. What's my ego? It's the, uh, it's the need to be seen as right all the time. It's the need for justice in the universe to follow my timeline. It's the need to fill up the space in a room. It's, it's the need to feel ahead of others. It's the need to be envied. As I follow Christ, I'm becoming more and more convinced that it's not foundationally my financial giving that defines my faithfulness. It, it's not Christian business that foundationally marks my commitment to Christ. I'm becoming more convinced it's meekness. It's self-forgetfulness. It's poverty of spirit. Realizing that no one owes me anything, but instead the one that I could never pay back paid the ultimate cost so that I may live. And man, that, that'll soften you, you know? It'll make your heart a little more mild and kind and patient with others who might owe you. So, whatever your status is in this culture as a Christian, you may be man or a woman, Chinese Indonesian or non-Chinese Indonesian, expat or local, rich, poor, remember the cross of Christ and likewise be subject to others generously, wisely, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their salvation, and for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and we pray in the behalf of Christian women out there who may find themselves in a marital relationship with non-Christian husbands who perhaps are experiencing some kind of pushback for their desire and their longing to follow and worship you. Give them, Father, the kind of meekness and humility that could never come from themselves, but from the spirit of the meek one living in them, um, displaying the cross of Christ for their husband to see. And I pray for Christian men who may be married to non-Christian wives, that they too would display a kind of radical meekness and humility and self-forgetfulness that their ego won't get the best of them, but they would lay down their rights and, and not use their, um, their, their, their social power in the situation uh, for their own selfish gain or to, to force their wives to follow them uh, in an abusive manner, but rather for them to radically lay down their rights and love their wives and endure whatever it is they're, they're called to endure because Christ endured it for them. And lastly, to all of us, Father, I pray that you give us a heart of meekness, um, shape us to become the person you prayed about in, in the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, meek, peacemakers, as those who are willing uh, 
to display who you are, and if we're persecuted as a result of that, to endear it, and for us to count all things as loss for the sake of knowing you and the power of your resurrection uh, through, uh, through your suffering and by dying the death, uh, Father, uh, that, that you've called us uh, to, to follow for the benefit of others, for the sake of Christ, and for the glory of our Father. Thank you, Father. Let the gospel seep deeper into our hearts and cause us to be the kind of people who display your meekness to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.